We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Sometimes to encounter silence, we must travel outside the recording studio to hear its rhythms and participate with it. When we do, we bring our basic recording devices to keep a record of that engagement, resulting in field recordings. These recordings all may vary in participants and content, surprising us in the variety of ways that silence speaks. Jay Brent Bill is a writer, photographer, retreat leader, writing coach, and Quaker minister. He's written and co-written many books, including, but not limited to, Holy Silence, The Gift of Quaker Spirituality, Life Lessons from a Bad Quaker, Finding God in the Verbs, Crafting a Fresh Language of Prayer, Mind the Light, Awaken Your Senses, Sacred Compass, and most recently, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, Four Essentials for the Abundant Life. Brent graduated from Wilmington College in the Earlham School of Religion. His work experience is vast and includes serving as a church pastor, a seminary faculty member, a denominational executive, and may we not forget, a go-kart track operator. I love that. (laughs) Currently, he resides on Plowshare Farms, which consists of 50 acres of Indiana farmland that is being reclaimed for native hardwood forests and warm seasons prairie grasses. Reading Brent's work is enlivening and and affirming of the relationship I have with silence, which I seem to need to begin time and time again. In his book, Holy Silence, he writes, When we really want to hear and be heard by someone we love, we do not go rushing into noisy crowds. Silence is a form of intimacy. That's how we experience it with our friends and our lovers. As relationships grow deeper and more intimate, we spend more and more quiet time alone with our lover. We talk in low tones about the things that matter. And with these words on the grounds of Plowshare Farms with Brent today, I welcome him to the podcast. Brent, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Cassidy. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to finally talk with you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like we've been ships passing in the night for a while, so... (laughs) Um, and it's been great to read your work. Um, we typically open with a question asking how silence has been a part of your life and your spiritual journey. Um, in particular, we'd like to know if you can think of a time from childhood or later when you encountered silence in a particularly meaningful way. Oh, there, there have been so many, but I think my really uh, deepening appreciation for silence came when I was a student at Wilmington College. Mm. I grew up uh, an evangelical Quaker, which uh, is one of the pastoral branches of Quakerism. But I went to Wilmington College, which is uh, a Quaker school that that uh, had a wonderful professor who grew up in the unprogrammed or non-pastoral tradition named T. Canby Jones, and uh, Canby stressed silence Mm -hmm. as the 
real way to hear the voice of God. In all our uh, biblical classes, uh, studies of Quaker faith uh, as an undergraduate, and I still have papers and books that he gave me, and then I started attending uh, some of the campus worship services that were uh, convened in silence as we we sat and listened. And being in a room where that um, was named for Thomas Kelly, hmm. they're a great writer of a testament of devotion who was also a Wilmington College uh, okay. graduate. And sitting in silence, there was just this uh, amazing sense of being surrounded by uh, the great cloud of witnesses, mm. and also, uh, as I thought of all the people who worshipped in that space, but also uh, God present in a very real sacramental way. And so, uh, you know, throughout my life, there have been been many uh, from, some are recounted in holy silence, you know, from... Uh, going to meeting for worship in a small Vermont uh, friends meeting with probably 15 people there in the wood fire uh, in the stove crackling away to uh, mm. sitting in silence with uh, a thousand friends uh, at a summer gathering and, and the power of each of those was different but still amazing to me yeah yeah I have a couple questions for you. Sure. So, so, well, I mean, I have a lot of questions, but <laughs> did you, so did you grow up Quaker? Were you yes, it born was to a Quaker family? Evangelical Quaker, okay. which is... Uh, yeah, can you explain that a little more? Yeah, it's uh, the Evangelical Friends um, uh, came about in the 1880s and 90s as the pastoral movement came among friends. And so okay. uh, in theology, in some ways, uh, they have traditional Quaker theology, but also blend it with uh, holiness theology similar to the Wesleyans, Free Methodist, and Nazarenes. Okay. okay. And so they're very uh, interested in personal salvation, mm -hmm. and there's an uh, emphasis on uh, preaching, Okay. As opposed to uh, silence. Mm. Uh, we always had silence, but it was generally uh, brief yeah. sort of, you know, interludes. So we were not drenched in silence in our meeting meetings for worship. Uh, it, it seemed very much like uh, a typical Protestant service in some ways. Okay. And uh, it wasn't, like I said, until college that I began to encounter mm -hmm. other forms of uh, Quakerism that had uh, retained much more emphasis on uh, the silence and listening to it. And I was just enthralled with that. Yeah. So having grown up um, with that experience of silence, at least in part, mm -hmm. did you ever kind of rub up against it and think, oh, this is baloney? You know, like most kids go through <laughs> uh, something. Uh, not the silence so much. I, okay. I always seem to rub up against the preaching. <laughs> I, would, I would tend to, yeah. to, to uh, fade out during the preaching and mm. sit there and as a bad Quaker, even as a kid, look up and think, now if that chandelier cut loose, who would it fall on? <laughs> uh, would it hit the preacher and we'd have some silence? So, you know, the silence, uh, I won't say I found it easy, but I always found it welcoming. Mm. 
And so um, it was nice to be quiet for just a little while and listen to the to the sounds around me, which I always understood as part of uh, worshiping in in silence. It wasn't we weren't worshiping silence per se uh, or the silence. We were getting quiet to hear the voice of God, and that the voice of God would come to us in all kinds of ways. And so, mm-hmm. one of the ways I I would hear my grandfather uh, cough in worship mm. and I knew my I was surrounded by family because my grandfather worked on the railroad and, and smoked three packs of camels a day so the combination <laughs> he had this distinctive cough sure it's like yeah my family's here I'd hear the cars go by on the mm. the street I could look out the window because we had no stained glass you know and so it's like what we were doing was even in the silence it was connected with with real life yeah it wasn't to be a distraction. Yeah, yeah. And how does your relationship with silence impact your work and your creativity as a writer and a speaker? I know I'm sure there's probably a lot of directions you could go with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one always wonders how, how silence impacts uh, one as a speaker, uh, but I need it to center down before I, I speak, uh, to get clear and to learn to be, uh, even as I'm, uh, speaking or leading a workshop, workshop to be centered and silent in my soul at the same time. It, uh, Thomas Kelly talks about living on kind of like two planes, the one where we're going about our daily work, but inside we have an interior calm that keeps us centered in, in Christ. And to learn to do that is, of course, a lifelong practice, and I'm still not... I'm better, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm mm-hmm. not perfect at it. But it does help keep me able to uh, see where I need to change what I'm saying based on looking out at folks who are gathered and looking toward me, being able to read their expressions instead of forging ahead with my agenda. But in writing especially, I need the, the centeredness of silence especially in the editing stages, to say, is is this the right word? What am I conveying here, and am I conveying it in such a way that it can be heard? Mm-hmm. And the only way I can do that is look at the words in in, in silence. And, and I do uh, regard uh, my writing as a form of worship mm-hmm. um, and an exploration, too, in worship of uh, where God is leading me. Almost every book that I've written in the in the last 20 years uh, has grown out of a place of seeking or need for me to to learn to uh, go deeper and uh, so holy silence you know people go well you're a Quaker and you know silence must come (laughs) natural and it's like no I have monkey mind I talk all the time I'm chattery so I need. I wrote Holy Silence to explore silence in my life and to help me go deeper. And mm-hmm. same was true with Sacred Compass on spiritual discernment. And every book, and so it is a form of me both worshiping and seeking, mm. and and silence helps me do that in a way that it doesn't happen any any yeah. other way. Yeah, worshiping, seeking, and and also, it was interesting because when you were talking about writing and speaking also kind of silence as an editor 
mm-hmm. of both speaking, your speaking yeah. and writing, which is really kind of a fun thought to develop it as more of a participant. And also in your latest book, uh, Beauty, Truth, Life, and Love, you write deeply about each topic while still offering moments of pause that feels like a rhythm in each section, which you title moments of beauty rest, testing for truth, lifelines, and love letters, all of which begin with the three commands, relax your body, mind, and spirit, take two or three deep breaths, put the book down, and think about the following slowly and gently. And you follow this with a question or a thought for the reader to consider. And first, I, I want to thank you for that dispersed throughout your book. And, and Holy Silence also offers practices that one can follow if they choose to. But it also seems to really resemble this, this rhythm of silence and this rhythm of silence that you kind of invite the reader into, which I really appreciate. And I wonder if you could talk about silence as rhythm a little yeah. bit. What's interesting in some ways how those came about, when Lil Copan and I were uh, working on my first book on Quaker spirituality, Holy Silence, the book was all finished, and we thought. <laughs> and uh, Lil uh, is such a good editor, and she goes, there's something missing. You know, you're talking a lot mm. about uh, silence, and it, it's helpful but is there a way we can find to invite the reader into the text? And, mm. yeah, you know, I just had slaved away <laughs> on that book for a long time. And it was like, we're up against deadline. And I said, if you'll give me two more weeks, I can maybe. But I need to go to a movie or <laughs> go do something fun. And yeah, and Lil uh, said, sure, you know, you can have it. And And the next day as I was going to go do something fun, I thought, you know, Quakers have this practice of asking queries, we call them, spiritual questions, that don't necessarily have a right or wrong answer, but they are an invitation into uh, how our faith interacts with daily life. Would there be a way to do that in, in the book? To, hmm. to find a rhythm of where a good break is yeah. and invite the, the reader back into reflection. Because I do consider a book as a conversation with the reader. Mm-hmm. But so many books you know, don't give the reader the chance to respond <laughs> in this one-way conversation. Cause, you know, so this was, I thought, well, here's a chance to do that. And uh, every book I've written since that I've solo written has had some form of those throughout because I do think that finding rhythms of silence throughout our days you know our ordinary day really uh, returns us to center Mm. uh, returns us to God and keeps us centered because we can I can let me not speak for anybody else but (laughs) I can get so busy and harried yeah. that I can easily lose center. And I can I can read a tweet or mm-hmm. uh, a Facebook post and get all anxious and want to respond yeah. in a way that wouldn't be helpful or uh, I just can get off track. So I've learned to 
to do rhythms of silence throughout the day in different ways. And some are as simple as taking a a music break Mm -hmm. in the sense of putting something on that I'm not really listening to but gets me out of my head Mm -hmm. a little bit and then helps me enter into silence. Others are just literally making the screen go black, um, turning my uh, phone off, and turning and facing. I have different things. There's... Behind you, there's a pillow that says "Stop talking," <laughs> <laughs> that a friend of mine had made for me yeah. uh, when the new Holy Silence came out. And I look at that and think, mm. "Stop talking, stop thinking." Yeah, go into a rhythm of silence for a while and be refreshed, mm-hmm. or go for a walk in the woods with the cats. Yeah, yeah. This conversation on encountering silence will continue after a thirty-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. So you make me think of two things. I want to bring up, I want to talk a little bit more about queries. Yeah. But first I want to talk about something you're touching on, just being the accessibility of silence. Mm-hmm. And silence as oases of peace. In Holy Silence, I loved this story on page 49 where you talk about these spaces of peace in the midst of hectic family life. You know, for those people who may have young children mm-hmm. or busy families or single parenting people just think it's ridiculous to think we could sit for 20 minutes in silence and you write about how you know silence helps us carve out these times of peace it can be a time out for our family souls i'm not foolish enough to suggest that you gather your family at the appointed time and sit in si- a silent circle in the living room i was foolish enough as a young parent to have tried that only to have everybody rebel <laughs> It was not a pretty sight, nor one of my finest parental moments. Still, families can practice spiritual silence in practical ways. These ways can be as simple as inviting everybody who has piled into the car to pause and take a breath before backing out of the garage, or to bow heads in silent prayer at mealtimes, taking a Quaker grace. And I loved just the affirmation that those moments, the glance out the window, is truly a moment of silence, is Mm -hmm. truly a moment of feeding our souls. And yeah, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the accessibility of silence. Well, well, that is one of the things um, that I love, especially since I'm a Quaker, about the idea of Quaker silences. For uh, so many people, I think they think of monastic silences or silent retreats that you have to go on. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, the silence uh, that the early Quakers and Quakers throughout our history have tapped into is the silence of the ordinary person. I mean, the, hmm. the early Quakers were not monastics. Right, right. You know, they were tradespeople, caregivers, farmers, all kinds of occupations, as we, as we are today. And so it's not getting away to a silent place. It's learning to carry 
uh, a, a silence in the midst of a busy life that is is accessible uh, to the untrained person. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> yeah. not it's yeah. not just for the religious right. professionals or those who have dedicated a life. And that's nothing against the those people. That, right. That's that's what they're called to do, and 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 that's a wonderful sort of thing. But most of us don't have that opportunity, and so to learn to to take little I, I see these silences as Sabbaths mm-hmm. uh, a Sabbath rest uh, drop the ice still dues of Sabbath rest you know as John Greenleaf Whittier mm-hmm. said it's not that I've always been a writer sitting up in this little room typing away I've always had a job until the last couple of years when I retired and at one time I was uh, the chief operating officer of a large not-for-profit mm-hmm. uh, with uh, you know, million, you know, millions of dollars in budget, and I had to learn to practice that in the midst, you know, silence in the midst of a very demanding professional life. And those were the things that helped keep me centered. It was as simple as putting my phone in the office on do not disturb. Mm, yeah, you know, or doing mm. an out of office uh, reply on our inner office. Uh, email that just said Brent's being quiet for a minute mm, yeah <laughs> yeah I'll be back with you soon right right and and giving myself permission to look out the window and and this what I found is I gave myself permission to do that and instead of just think I've got so much to do I've got to push through this is that the time actually became enlarged in some ways it wasn't you know that more time was added to the clock Right. But there was more space in my soul, and so it freed up my thoughts in ways that trying to plow on through didn't. And and for families, I think that it's an invitation for children of all ages to encounter God themselves, to invite mm-hmm. them into that, mm-hmm. instead of just uh, hearing people talk about God, or reading about God, but to experience God together as a family, or to teach them to use their spiritual imagination to see God in everywhere by taking those timeouts. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Just silence is for everyone, and and that it makes space for our souls, Mm -hmm. as you say. And along those lines... I wonder if we could talk a little bit about queries yeah. and the idea of this Quaker practice, how that could also potentially benefit everyone in terms of hosting these unanswerable questions and being willing to ask ourselves answerless questions. In Holy Silence, you write, Queries is the friend's practice of examining our souls and seeking clarity. These questions and exercises help to give time to seek truth about ourselves and our spiritual condition and tap into divine insight. Queries guide us in listening for God's voice in our lives. Well, I think, you know, Quakers are, are non-creedal. Um, so we don't, we don't have a statement of faith that everybody has to subscribe to or whatever. So we, throughout the generations, we've had to find ways to to ask deep spiritual questions um, of ourselves 
individually and in community. So queries have been developed over the years, and they've they've changed over the years as as society has changed and new things arise. And so our Quaker meetings will ask queries as we're gathered, but also to be able to carry queries with us to to not... um, They're not a catechism, per se, where... You know, there's a question, and then so here is here is the answer. Memorize the answer. Memorize right. the answer, and, <laughs> and and again, nothing against catechisms, absolutely, but, right? And they they really fit in uh, uh, many traditions, but they don't for a non-credal. And just as I learn from reading catechisms or whatever, because I I read widely, and you know, I have a lot of friends from other traditions that really help. Some of their practices help me a lot, and I can incorporate them. But the idea of the Quaker query, uh, coming up with spiritual questions about daily life and our and how it impacts our spiritual condition, I, I think are really helpful ways that anybody can use. And you know, you don't have to write your own queries. There are tons of queries out on the internet, even that mm. Quakers have put out on different topics but just those pauses to to ask yourself a question that has no clear expected answer mm-hmm. uh, allows your soul some freedom to really uh, wrestle with it mm-hmm. uh, like Jacob wrestled with the angel I mean you know maybe a query is a sort of angel that comes to us and helps us wrestle with faith and we come away blessed yeah yeah. Or we come away disturbed and think, <laughs> I, I, here's an area I need to work on. Right, right. Which is equally been a, a, equally a blessing. Yeah. So in reading your work, there are a few times where your writing reminded me of good old Thomas Merton. Um, wow. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> in, in Holy Silence, um, the eloquence with which you write about and explore silence is so central. Reminded me of Merton's words from an essay called Day of a Stranger, where he writes, Perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure nothingness, which is at the center of all other loves. Mm. And then in your latest book, you write about remaining true to our lives. And you write so plainly and clearly, If you aren't what you should be, you'll not only not set the world ablaze, you'll put your own fire out. And along with this, you talk about listening to what our life is saying and heeding our bodily signals. You tell a powerful story about beginning to have panic attacks um, at a particular job, and a story which I can relate to quite well. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the to that true self concept, and or if you kind of relate to that true self concept. I mean, I think that's a hard lesson for a lot of uh, Christians to to get this idea of if our true self is somehow more easily identified than what we think of it to be. Uh, Many of us have been taught so much that our true self is something um, sinful or, you know, depending on the tradition that we grew up in, Mm -hmm. instead of uh, that God has uh, brought us to this place as the individuals we are, because that's what's needed, and that we are not going to be 
molded into that which we weren't meant to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean we won't be stretched uh, uh, or whatever. And it doesn't mean that we arrive perfect. <laughs> we we have lots of growth areas. But the things that you love mm-hmm. and the things that I love uh, will lead us into different places and different experiences. And there is no one normative that we're all supposed to be like mm-hmm. and, and fit in. Uh, that this is what a person of faith looks like and how a person of faith will act in this situation or that situation. Uh, What a person of faith is to do or not do. Uh, A friend of mine and I were talking, we had this this book that uh, came out a a number of years ago called Just As We Were, uh, The Dangers of Growing Up Born Again. (laughs) And it's really... Uh, kind of clever, but in, in uh, one of the sections, it has careers that were appropriate for born again kids and careers that were not. You know, bartender was not on mm. the, the appropriate list because, of course, there, it was very prescribed. And so, Christian faith, I believe, is not that prescribed as far as how we are as individuals to live. And so, to find uh, to follow our inclinations, to say what is calling to my heart's deepest uh, desires, um, as opposed to what am I, I feeling obligated to do because I have a certain talent, so I could do that, so I should go do that. Um, it really came home to, to me one day when I was doing a workshop, of all places, I was doing it Southern, at the Catholic, uh, the Newman Center, at uh, Southern Methodist University had a Quaker come <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk about spiritual discernment. Mm. And there was a young man there who was uh, in graduate school at SMU, and he was studying immigration law. And this was 2009. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it's like he's he's wrestling. He goes, but every day I go by a soup kitchen and I think, I should drop out of school and go work for that that soup kitchen because they have a need. And I'm just studying immigration law. And it and so we had a, a discussion about that. I said, who else can study immigration law with a heart of faith? You know, wh- what's your vision for this? And as he began to talk, it was obvious he had this concern for uh, migrants at the border, even back then, which we weren't, as aware of it probably as we are now. But uh, I said, so why would you think that God would want you to to lay that down, you know, to go serve in a soup kitchen? Somebody else might feel really called to work in the soup kitchen who's not obligated. Mm. So how it certainly, that you know, we have to balance that. But this idea, what's our heart passion calling us to? What are our, what are our inclinations toward? And so how do we serve, how do we do ministry in those things? And how do we say no to those things which seem to suck the life out of us because they're not true to who we are? Right. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. 
I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There, you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>